This podcast is brought to you by Sarah Taylor, the author of a new book entitled Filter Shift, How Effective People See the World. Please join Sarah and Greg as they discuss her new book on podcast number 627. In the interview, they explore how each and every one of us has created filters and how these filters shape the way we see the world and how we interact with others. The effects of our unconscious behaviors can create tremendous challenges in our lives at work and at home. Learn how to retain your brain and become aware of your own biases and differences to allow for improved effectiveness. Please take a moment to listen to podcast number 627 with author Sarah Taylor about her new book, Filter Shift, How Effective People See the World. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all my listeners, Eric, as I do every time I come on these shows, we're topping almost 640 podcasts with authors like yourself in personal growth, wellness, mastery, spirituality. And today joining me from Los Angeles is Eric Barker. Eric has a new book out, um, How to Start how to stop barking up the wrong tree and start being awesome at life. And it's barking up the wrong tree by Eric Barker. And it's the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is in parentheses, mostly wrong. Uh, (laughs) Eric, good day to you. How are you? Doing great. Thank you very much. Pleasure to have you on inside personal growth and to spend some time uh, with my listeners actually talking about a really interesting book because I think, you know, there's a lot of myths out there that um, people are under about success and happiness. And Eric here is going to tell us uh, to the contrary in some of those things. And Eric, I'm going to let my listeners know a little bit about you. In 2009, Eric started a blog that sought to make out sense of all the academic and expert opinions regarding success in life. I should say success and happiness. And then eight years later, The blog has nearly 300,000 email subscribers and has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic Monthly, Wired, and Financial Times. And now Eric's published this great book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, which is actually released today, where we're going to undercover the counterintuitive strategies that create success. Well, Eric, uh, you know, you start this book off in a really interesting way. I'm an avid cyclist. I've done probably, I don't know, 15 century rides for Leukemia Society. And I've been involved watching the guys leave a little town that I live close to in Oceanside called Race Across America. And I've actually watched these guys leave. And you talk about uh, this Robic, who is the guy who's won it five times. I don't know if he's run it any more than that. You know, at the end of the ride, actually, I know the the organizers will say that he's got a rope on his neck just holding his head up because he's hallucinated and he's gone crazy and he sees all kinds of stuff out there as he's riding along. What is the connection between this story and his complete insanity at times during this ride? And what does this all have to do with success? I mean, the interesting thing is that, like I said, the book is you know, all about these maxims of success and, you know, nice guys finish last. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And, you know, all these things about what success is and, you know, it's, it's many of them are bright and shiny and and nice, but, you know, we all all seen exceptions to this. And the exception that I start the book off with 
is uh, Yuri Robich, who won the Race Across America, this grueling race where, you know, it's the Tour de France has breaks. This is, a, you know, arrived from Atlantic City to San Diego, and the clock doesn't stop. You know, they eat, they go to the bathroom, they sleep, uh, people are passing them. So, right. so literally across the entire United States in between 9 and 12 days, and they sleep maybe three hours a night. And the the guy, I mean, he's he's now passed, but um, the uh, the number one guy was Yuri Robich, and his secret to success was insanity. His secret to success was when he would ride, he would absolutely lose his mind. He would see, you know, he would start to see the cracks in the pavement, sort of mm-hmm. reading, making coded messages. He would see Mujahideen chasing him with guns. He would get into fistfights with mailboxes. But this craziness allowed him to uh, to ignore the pain, the incredible, insufferable pain for riding for nearly nine days straight, uh, 3,000 miles across the United States. And it gave him such an advantage that, uh, you know, at least one time uh, he crossed the finish line and the number two guy took another 11 hours to cross the finish line. So this 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 insanity, this trade that we normally nobody would ever recommend to their children, nobody would ever say uh, you need to uh, disassociate yourself from reality, you know, gave him an unbeatable edge and made him, you know, one of the top ultra endurance athletes. And that's how I start off the book, because it just raises the question of, you know, is everything that produces success, uh, you know, so, you know, is it all the nice stuff that our parents told us when we were growing up? You know, what are the real answers here uh, that, that science shows, you know, as opposed to the things we hear, which which may have a, you know, very positive agenda? What does the science really say? Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting because this book is loaded with great stories. And I love the fact that you've used those stories to articulate this message. And one of them is you give an example of Ashland, who has a disease called CIPA. It's a congenital insensitivity to pain. Um, Very similar to what you were talking about with Robick in the in his race across America. You then ask the question is, are our weaknesses actually strengths? Tell us the story about Ashland and how we should reframe our perspective about those possible weaknesses. Yeah, that's what's really interesting is uh, there was a New York Times Magazine profile a number of years back on Ashland Blocker, who has SIPA, which is uh, congenital insensitivity to pain with an- anhydrosis, which uh, basically means she cannot feel pain. And I think most people's initial reaction to this would be, oh, my God, that would be great. You know, it's like going to the dentist wouldn't be difficult. You'd never you'd never have a hangover. Your back wouldn't hurt. You know, it just it'd be wonderful. But the truth is, uh, SIPA is a very, very dangerous condition because they can still feel damage. They're not Superman. They can still have damage to their body. They're not Superman, uh, but they don't feel it. So. You know, very commonly, uh, they, you know, as, as children, they frequently bite their lips, bite through their lips and don't even notice. They sometimes rub their eyes raw. Uh, a disproportionate number of the children die in childhood because when their parents, you know, wrap them uh, up too much to keep them warm, the kids overheat because they don't cry out. Uh, if they have any internal problems, you know, like appendicitis, they don't feel the pain, so they don't go to the hospital. So this thing that seems like like a superpower is actually extremely dangerous. And the flip side of that is are there many times where something that, you know, we see as a weakness, we see as a danger, 
uh, when you look at the research of Harvard Business School professor Gautam Akunda, you see that sometimes the, the, the bad traits we have in the right context can actually be what he calls intensifiers. They can be qualities which, given the right context, can actually be less of a poison and more of a performance-enhancing drug. Yeah, and I think that's true about any athlete. You know, when you look at it, you reach certain thresholds of pain that you have to push through. I look at just the intensity and the kind of workouts that people go to, to you know, just get uh, a gold medal, for instance, in the Olympics. Now, you state that there was a study done of 700 millionaires that shows that the average GPA of a millionaire was 2.9, um, which is pretty close to a B, you know, you state that the following rules doesn't create success. So if, if we want to become successes, what do you suggest? Because you're saying in the book, it's right in the front of the book that uh, valedictorians are the least ones to become millionaires. Uh, Not the the least, not the least one. Okay. (laughs) But, but but you're saying very few of them, right? Become become a huge success. It's, it's people like, you know, look at Bill Gates. Uh, you know, you look at Steve Jobs, you look at all these people who will tell you, you know, it's a uh, uh, Gates didn't even have a degree. So go figure, right? Yeah. I mean, Bill Gates dropped out of college. Uh, Steve Jobs dropped out of college. Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of college. Larry Ellison dropped out of college. I mean, the, the list goes on. And when you look at the um, number of years ago, a study was done at the Forbes 400. These are the richest people on the planet, billionaires. And uh, I believe it was 58 of them uh, had dropped out of college. And if you looked at that subset, their net worth was about four times the average. Um, in fact, their, that subset's net worth was actually greater than the subset of those who had graduated from Ivy League universities. Now, I am not saying everybody should drop out of college, but the interesting thing to note is just that the correlation between academic success and career success is, is loose at best. When Karen Arnold studied uh, valedictorians, uh, what she found, is, high school valedictorians, what she found is that they did very well, but they did not go on to change the world. They did not go on you know, to become billionaires. And that's because these are people who are not necessarily brilliant. They're very good at complying with rules. And school is good with giving you rules. Take this test, do this. They're very clear rules. They're very good at complying with rules. They treat school like, you know, like a game, like work. You know, however, life does not have very, very clear rules. Life has more options, plenty of options. There's no clear path. You could go be an entrepreneur. You could do your own thing. And so because of that, it's not, life is not necessarily like school. So valedictorians do well but they don't reach the heights of success because there isn't that level of risk tolerance necessary to, to do as well, to reach the highest levels. So there's a disconnect there, you know, in terms of when parents say, you know, study hard, you know, it's good advice, but that is not necessarily advice that gets you to the heights of success. That's the advice that keeps you safe. That's the advice that stops you from, it, it doesn't make you win. It's, stops you from losing. <laughs> and those are, those are two very different perspectives. And yeah. you know, mom, mom wants you to be safe. Well, and I, I think that most of the people we mentioned in that, Bill Gates and uh, Steve Jobs, you know, these, those guys were guys that thought way out of the box. And if you're going to work by the rules, a lot of times you're not thinking out of the box. You don't have that pliability and flexibility. And I think what you state in the book is, you know, look, these guys can lose and they can pick right back up again. 
Whereas the other people might not have that muscle to pick back up again and just move on. You know, they, they would take defeat not so hard and just pick up and move on to the next. And I think that's a good point that you make. And that's also a good trait to have and a good character to have in an individual. Now, you, you tell a fascinating story about Dr. Swango. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Who by your account or in the book's account, um, this doctor um, who was treating patients in hospitals actually killed over 60 patients. Um, use this story to ask the readers the question, do people who cheat and break the rules succeed more often? And is the world fair? Um, what does your research reveal about that? This guy was a total psychopath, but got away with this for years. And finally, I think it was in 2002, finally got caught or something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, no, Michael Swango uh, was a doctor and he was also a serial killer and mm -hmm. he killed many people. And, you know, again, we, we often like to, it helps us to get to sleep at night to think the world is fair. But the truth is that there were many times where uh, people found out, you know, what he was doing, what he was involved in. And people were much more interested in protecting their careers, protecting the institutions. Uh, and he was allowed to continue in one way or another for, uh, for more than 15 years uh, because people were worried. Are we going to get sued? Are we going to lose our jobs? Is there going to be, you know, lawsuits or problems or, you know, a bad reputation for the hospital or for us? And so he just kept going from hospital to hospital. But eventually he was caught. Right. But, you know, it was, it's, a, it's a scary situation. And that's why I opened the chapter with that so we can get into the, a more nuanced discussion you know, of, no, everything doesn't immediately end happily like a Disney film, you know, and if you believe it does, you're going to be very disappointed. Mm -hmm. uh, on the flip side, you know, good can win out, you know, over time, and eventually he was, you know, arrested, and he's incarcerated now, and will be for the rest of his life. So, no, we have this issue of, do nice guys finish last? Is the world fair? You know, and, and it's, it's, it, it is a, a more nuanced answer than just yes or no. Right. Oh, of course. And it obviously, you know, with all your research, it's not always about uh, that as well. What I mean by that is, you know, here's this guy that got away with this for years and years and years, and people were protecting him because they wanted to make sure that they had their jobs. I mean, we see situations even today um, where this is happening. Now, you tell lots of great success stories in the book, but if you would tell us about the power of grit and determination when it comes to happiness, optimism, and life satisfaction. I think my readers would, or my listeners would like to know about that because, you know, grit, as you found it, and I've found this before in other books, is a really key determining factor of somebody uh, having optimism, somebody being happy, somebody having high life satisfaction. Why is that? I mean, the thing is, I think, you know, right now, you know, grit is, is having it stay in the sun. You know, everybody, everybody is very curious about grit. And I think it's because we all struggle with uh, being consistent with long-term goals. And what you see is that there are very often that grit is, you know, what promotes grit is about, you know, three things very often. And that is optimism. And I tell the story of uh, Navy SEAL James Waters, who, uh, whose optimistic attitude helped him get through some of the most, you know, grueling training imaginable. The second is games, kind of framing your life, seeing your life as a game helps us keep going even when we think we can't. And I tell the story of 
uh, Joe Simpson, who had a horrendous mountain climbing accident, yet managed to manage to survive and get through it by perceiving the difficult challenges ahead as a game. And uh, also the stories. And I tell the story of Viktor Frankl, who managed to survive the Holocaust and you know keep going, uh, you know, despite being in one of the most horrific, you know, horrific places imaginable, by the story he told himself about his life, about what was important, uh, and what he was living for. And, you know, those are three things that can really help us be gritty. But the other thing I wanted to do in, in the chapter, and I took great time to do, is to make sure that we don't start to see grit like this magic thing, because we have to look at the other side as well, which is that quitting is really important. If we didn't quit things, we would still be doing, we'd still be playing hopscotch and, you know, and acting like five-year-olds. You, you do quit things and you have to quit things because, uh, you know, when you move on in life, you grow, you change. And the more stuff you quit, the more time and energy you have to devote the things you, you want to be gritty at. So quitting and grit uh, are actually complementary. And we have to really understand what's important to us and let go of things that, you know, aren't working for us or don't serve our long-term goals. And I think a lot of people forget that. And um, so I discuss, you know, the importance and the methods by which to quit as well as grit because we, we need to understand both. Yeah, it's so very important to know when to let go and when to move on. And, uh, you know, letting go is something that is, again, I'm going to say another one of those muscles that over time um, we continue uh, to build, just like working out in a gym. Uh, it's that ability to say no. It's that ability to move on. It's ability to know when to cut your losses, whatever it might be, whether it's in business or personal in our personal life. Now, you state that the best predictor of our children's well-being is not great schools. It's not hugs. It's not picture movies. Uh, if it's not these things um, that we often shower our children with, and I've read this story before, and it is fascinating, uh, tell us what this predictor is of our children's well-being and and why. Oh, you mean in terms of uh, the children uh, knowing their family? Of story? Our story, yeah, our story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because okay. that is that is the predictor of their well-being is the story, right? Yeah, well, across a number of things, you see the power of stories in terms of providing meaning in life. Uh, when you look at people, when you look at children, uh, the most powerful predictor of their well-being was whether they knew their family story. When I spoke to John Gottman, who's the leading researcher on romantic relationships and marriages, uh, he said the most, the best predictor of how strong a relationship uh, was like and whether a couple was likely to stay together uh, was how they told their story. You know, did they tell a positive, wonderful story of how they overcame challenges, or did they tell a downbeat story about how the, you know, how difficult things are and how problematic their spouse is? Um, you know, across a lot of different measures, the story we tell ourselves about our lives, our families, you know, our careers uh, has enormous effects because, you know, stories are sort of the operating system of the human mind. And when we tell positive ones, again, uh, that also produces grit and resilience because when you feel like this is my destiny, this is what I was meant to do, when that's the story you live by, you keep going. And it's inherently an optimistic one versus having a pessimistic story of I'm not good at this, I can't do it. Uh, Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania says that the difference between optimism and pessimism is the three Ps. Are things personal? Are they persistent? And are they pervasive? When we see good things as being personal, I did this, I'm capable of it. When we see it as being uh, persistent, I'm always awesome at this. We, we feel good when, we, when it's pervasive. I'm good at all of these things. 
it's really great. But when you see negative things as those, well, I screwed up. I always screwed up. I screw up everything. Seeing things negatively in terms of that is not only, you know, pessimistic, not only makes us feel bad, but it also makes us quit. It destroys grit. So having a positive personal story uh, that in any, any of these areas uh, has enormous effects in terms of resilience. Well, and it's about the self-talk that we are constantly uh, doing. It's about how our ego constantly can have this ability to, you know, put us down. You're not enough. You didn't do enough. You could do more. It's about telling yourself, you know, just the opposite of that, listening to what I say is that voice of intuition, the soul's voice that tells you, you know, it speaks with you with compassion. Um, you yeah. are okay. So, you know, you tell this great story about uh, Mihai Chicks and Mihai, uh, and it's a study he was doing. He sends out this inf- uh, invitation to Peter Drucker to participate in the study. And as you say in the book, he should have expected Drucker's response was, hey, I don't have time to do your study. If you would tell us the story and the lesson that you're trying to articulate to the readers about being successful uh, around postponing something or saying no to something. Yeah, I mean, plain and simple, you know, we only have 24 hours in a day. And, uh, you know, in terms of grit resilience, we're, if we're going to really bear down and, you know, the K. Anders Erickson, you know, has talked about uh, the 10,000 hours of expertise. And, you know, we're not worried about the exact number, but we all know that spending lots of time is key. You only have 24 hours in a day. So in the end, it's an issue. Off. You know, it's an issue of if you're spending one hour with your family, you're not spending it at work. And if you're spending it at work, you're not spending it with your family. So you have choices to make. And when Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi did this study, he was trying to reach out to the most creative people and learn something about them. And Pete Drucker said, simply, I don't have time for this. And, and he needed to use his hours for what was important to him. And that may sound selfish, but that's also dedication. That's also passion. Uh, there's a quote by Warren Buffett who said very successful people say no to almost everything. They have far more opportunities than they could ever say yes to if they want to keep being great at what they're great at. So that's something we need to think of. It's not always pleasant to, uh, to look at the world in terms of trade-offs. It's a, it's a very economically-minded perspective to be focused on opportunity cost. But that is the attitude we have to take if we really want to be dedicated and, you know, and show grit and show resilience and keep continuing to improve over time. Yeah, it is uh, an important one. And there's many times you hate doing it. But the reality is, is that if you're going to stay focused and you've got this purpose and this mission that you're on, and you know that these other things are distractions to save yourself from getting distracted if it's not part of the initiative or your purpose for doing that. Now, you kind of have a story in this book about this mathematician called Paul Edros, is it? Is that how you uh, say Erdish. it? Erdish. Erdish. I, I didn't know who he was, but he was a crazy son of a bitch, uh, to say the least, as you kind of tell in the story. What is it that, you know, you're trying to articulate to our listeners about this insatiable ability that this guy had as a mathematician, this nonstop hunger for just doing math, math, math all the time, but then his ability to collaborate with people all over the world. What message are you sending out with that one, Eric? Well, I mean, the, the whole, uh, the old, old pithy maxim of it's not what you know, it's who you know. You know, obviously, it's like it's it's not as simple as that. But on the side of uh, of giving some credence to that saying, 
Uh, I do tell a story of Paul Erdish, who is basically the, the center of the mathematics world. If you speak to serious mathematicians, uh, you can ask them what their Erdish number is. And the Erdish number basically is Paul Erdish collaborated with so many different mathematicians over his lifetime uh, by how close they are to having worked with Paul Erdish. So if your Erdish number is one, that means you collaborated on a paper with him. If your Erdish number is two, that means you collaborated with someone who collaborated on a paper with him and, and so on. And what you find is that uh, Nobel Prize winners uh, and field medal winners and top mathematicians disproportionately have very low Erdish numbers. This guy is the center of the mathematics world because he collaborated with so many people. It's all he did was crisscross the globe. And he made mathematicians better. Uh, you know, being closer to Erdish made you a better mathematician. Just shows the power of networking, you know, within a field uh, that eventually you could actually become so so much the center of your field that people judge themselves by their by their working proximity to you. Yeah, it it's a fascinating story. And you know, your book is really got some great examples, some great stories, um, and great opportunities for our listeners to to really just learn more about uh, the surprising science behind success and happiness and not only including your blog. Uh, For my listeners, uh, we've been on today with Eric Barker. Uh, The book is called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Great title, by the way, uh, Eric. Uh, The surprising science behind the way everything you know about success is mostly wrong. You can learn more about Eric, the book, his blog, by going to B-A-K-A-D-E-S-U-Y-O.com. And I'll repeat that. We'll put it in the blog as well. It's B-A-K-A-D-E-S-U-Y-O.com. Eric, any parting words for the listeners out there that you'd like to tell them about uh, success, happiness, and all this research that you've done so far? Uh, they can learn a lot more about it. Um, I mean, I know the URL of, of, of my blog is difficult to pronounce. If they just Google "barking up the wrong tree" or Google my name, Eric Barker, uh, that'll that'll take them to my blog. And every week, uh, I cover uh, academic research or talk to experts, make it accessible, and show people uh, how to how to improve their lives. And uh, in the book, I round up the whole counterintuitive science of success, so people can check that out on Amazon, or if they Google "barking up the wrong tree" or my name. Uh, they can check out my blog, but uh, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk with me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, for my listeners, by the way, the book breaks today. It's May 16th. um, And Eric has some awesome bonuses that he is giving away at the website that I just mentioned. Obviously, we'll put a link to that. But if you click on it, if you want the goodies, what are they going to get, Eric? Oh, uh, th- those are pre-order bonuses. Uh, so I don't know if they're going to be, if they're still going to be available now that the book's out. But, okay. Okay. <laughs> but I'm glad you're curious about them. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, again, for my listeners, go to Amazon, uh, check this book out, read the reviews. Uh, Eric has lots of accolades from uh, Daniel Pink, Adam Grant, uh, Robert Sutton, lots of people that uh, most of you know and you read. Great book easy read, uh, lots of great examples, an opportunity for you to learn uh, not only how to become more successful, but really how to apply some of these things and learn from the stories. We all learn from stories. And uh, Eric's a good storyteller in the book. Eric, thanks for being on. Thank you so much.